At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The late Bible scholar James Boyce said that every time he read through this section of Matthew's gospel, he was reminded of William Shakespeare's famous words about greatness in the play Twelfth Night. Shakespeare said, be not afraid of greatness. Some men are born great, some men achieve greatness, and some men have greatness thrust upon them. Boy, said he always thought of those words when it came to the disciples because it was greatness above all else that the Lord's followers longed for. And yet, he said, it was greatness above all else that continued to elude them. And Dr. Boyce was right. The 12 men that we encounter here in today's gospel lesson were many things, but great was not one of them. I mean, think about it. Not a single one of these men, Peter, Andrew, James, or John, was, in Shakespeare's words, born great. That is to say, not a single one of them came from a distinguished family or a noble birth. Actually, it was quite the opposite. Most of these men came from very humble, modest backgrounds. They were untrained, uneducated, rough-hewn fishermen. Likewise, none of these men had joined the ranks of those whom Shakespeare described as having achieved greatness. Not a single one had made a serious contribution to the arts, to science, or to literature. There didn't appear to be a Plato, Socrates, or Aristotle in the entire bunch. And finally, none of these men had, in Shakespeare's words, experienced greatness being thrust upon him. Thrust upon him as the result of some great crisis or trial, as with Churchill or Lincoln. No, there was none of that. In fact, it's probably safe to say that the only thing that these men had going for them in terms of true greatness was the fact that they were in the presence of it. They were in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and He was supremely great, and yet, sadly, even this was something that they often failed to understand or comprehend. No, great is not a word that we would have applied to any of these men at this point in their lives. But oh, greatness was something they all longed for. Greatness was something they all earnestly sought. Greatness was something they all hoped to attain. Well, how about you? Do you long to be great? stand out from the crowd, to be distinguished, to be recognized? Do you long to be a great athlete, a great scholar, great teacher, great preacher? Do you long to be a great doctor, a great lawyer, great parent, great spouse, great lover? What is it that constitutes true greatness? What are the distinguishing marks of a truly great man or a woman? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that question here in today's gospel lesson. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms what constitutes true greatness. Maybe not greatness in the eyes of the world, but certainly greatness in the estimation of God. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this event. 
And it's helpful sometimes to sit down and read all of these parallel accounts at the same time, because when you do, you get a fuller picture of the scene as it actually unfolded. It's rather remarkable. We're told that Jesus and his disciples were making their way along the road. They were headed toward Capernaum. And all of a sudden, an argument arose among them as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You see, at this point in their time with Jesus, the disciples possessed just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Yes, they had come to realize that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. It had taken them a while to get there, but they eventually arrived there. Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Christ. And yes, they had come to realize that as the Christ, Jesus was going to establish a kingdom and a world without end. In fact, this idea of the kingdom of God had been a continuous theme of Jesus' ministry almost from the beginning. And because these men were part of Jesus' inner circle, because they were his closest friends, they naturally assumed that when he established his kingdom, they would receive places of honor and distinction in it. I mean, why not? It's a practice as old as time. Wealthy, powerful people often reward their closest friends with positions of honor and importance. President does this every time he appoints a cabinet. And so naturally, these men assumed that the same thing would happen to them. But here was the problem. There were 12 of them. And what they really wanted to know was not who is going to be great in the kingdom, but rather who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to be top dog? You see, that was the issue. And what started off as a simple conversation quickly escalated into a serious argument that apparently lasted the entire length of their journey. And so finally, Matthew says, they reached their destination and decided to bring the whole matter to Jesus to settle once and for all. Verse 1 of today's lesson says, And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It was a very direct question. And how did Jesus reply? Well, Jesus did something rather shocking. We're told that Jesus brought a little child and placed that child in the midst of the disciples and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now I say that was a shocking thing for Jesus to do. Why? Well, because children in the first century did not enjoy a high status in society. We have a hard time understanding that today because we live in a culture in which people practically worship their children, but that was not the way it was in antiquity. Children were loved and cared for, but they were to be seen, not heard. The Talmud said that to spend time with children was a waste because they could not learn the law. A well-known rabbi said, morning wine, chattering with children, and gathering where the common people dwell, these are the things that destroy a man of promise. (laughs) That was the attitude of the day. And apparently it was the attitude of the disciples as well. 
You'll recall that on one occasion, the people were bringing their children to Jesus in the hopes that he might bless them, and it was the disciples who tried to shoo the little children away as a mere nuisance. It was Jesus who said, no, suffer the little children to come to me, and do not forbid them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. When Jesus took this child and placed that child in the midst of them and said, this is what greatness looks like, that would have been extraordinary to these men. What was Jesus trying to teach these disciples? I mean, the Bible is clear. There are certain qualities that children possess that you and I are not to emulate. For example, children are very gullible. They're easily taken in. They're easily seduced. And Jesus said his disciples were not to be like that. He said they were to be as peaceful as doves, but as shrewd as serpents. Children lack focus. They're easily distracted. They flip from one thing to the next. The Bible is clear. The followers of Jesus Christ are not to be like that. We are to be single-minded in our devotion and not easily distracted. Children are ignorant, aren't they? They lack knowledge. They lack understanding. And again, the followers of Jesus are not to be like that. We are to apply ourselves to wisdom and we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our strength, and all our mind. So no, we are not to be like children in these respects. But on the other hand, we have to admit, children do possess some rather admirable qualities too, don't they? For example, children are open-minded and trusting. We speak of a childlike faith, and that's the kind of faith that we are to have. Not a childish faith, but certainly a childlike faith, trusting the Lord no matter what the circumstances. Children are not concerned with status or position. Just watch a group of toddlers on the playground sometime. They do not care what kind of car you arrived in. They do not care what neighborhood you live in. They don't care what your family name is or your family heritage, whether it's good or bad. They don't even care about the color of your skin. My mother-in-law tells a wonderful story about my wife when she was a little girl. Kristen had a little neighbor boy. His name was Malcolm. He was African-American, and he would come over and play with her for some times. And all of a sudden, my mother-in-law one day heard the two children out in the backyard arguing. And she went out and she said, what in the world is going on? And Kristen said, Malcolm says that he is black. Mother looked at the little boy and said, well, he is black. And Kristen said, no, he's not. And her mother said, yes, he is. And Kristen stomped her foot and she said, no, he is not. And her mother said, well, then what is he? And she said, Malcolm is not black, Malcolm is brown. I just love that story, because that's the honesty of a child. Now, she didn't care whether, she wasn't thinking black's better than white or white's better than black. For all she cared, Malcolm could have been purple. She just wanted to get the color right. Little children are not colorblind, but they are race blind. They only learn prejudice from us. Little children are also teachable, aren't they? They are eager to learn. 
They'll say things like, teach me how to throw a ball. Teach me how to tie my shoes. Teach me how to tie a tie. They are eager to learn. It's only later as they grow up that they get stubborn and say, I can do it myself even when they can't. And in all of these ways, Jesus said his disciples were to be like little children. But of course, what the Lord really has in mind in this passage is humility. Little children are humble. Professor D.A. Carson, who is a renowned New Testament scholar and incidentally is going to be one of our speakers at the Mere Anglicanism Conference in January, put it this way. He said, the child is a model in this context not of innocence, faith, or purity, but of humility and unconcern for social status. Jesus assumed that people are not naturally like that. And therefore, he said, they must change to become like little children. Well, D.A. Carson hit the nail on the head. We are not humble like little children, are we? We are not unconcerned for social status. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. We are all concerned with social status, with how we are perceived, with our position, our place, our prestige in the world. And so when Jesus took this little child and placed them in the midst of the disciples and said, you want to know what greatness is? This is greatness. It was shocking to them. And let's be honest, it's shocking to us. But let me tell you something. It is not the only shocking thing that Jesus does in this passage. What he goes on to say about entrance into the kingdom of God is even more shocking If you look at verse 3 of today's lesson, you will notice that Jesus actually changes the nature of the disciples' question. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Talk about a surprise. These men came to Jesus wanting to know who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn and become like children, you're never even going to get into the kingdom of God. You're never even going to see the kingdom of God. Those words must have struck these men like a lightning bolt. They assumed that their inclusion in the kingdom of God was a foregone conclusion. They were shoe-ins for the kingdom of God. Now, why did they think that? Well, perhaps they thought it because, well, they were Jews. They were part of the covenant community. They were the children of Abraham. That's what many people in the first century thought. Certainly the scribes and the Pharisees assumed that that was the case. But earlier in this same gospel, John the Baptist had disabused them of such an idea. He said, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not assume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you the truth, God can raise up from the stones children for Abraham. Perhaps they thought that they were shoe-ins for the kingdom of God because they'd been raised in religious homes, surrounded by religious things, taken to the synagogue, taken to the temple. 
Perhaps they thought that was all that was necessary, but Jesus disabused them of this idea. He said it's not enough for people to honor God with their lips if their hearts are far from him. I don't know, perhaps they thought that because they were close to Jesus and were willing to call him Lord, that's all that was necessary for them to become great or to even enter the kingdom of God. But here again, Jesus said, no. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many whitey works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No, Jesus says none, none of that is sufficient for entrance into the kingdom of God. And I think that's a very important lesson for us today. Why? Because this is precisely how many people think just like the disciples. They assume that because mom and dad were devout Christians, pillars of the church, gave the money for the new Sunday school wing, they are automatically shoe-ins for the kingdom of God. But I want you to understand something. Christianity is not hereditary. It does not get passed on in the bloodstream. God has no grandchildren. Other people think, well, I've been raised in a religious home. I've gone to church. I've gone to confirmation. I've gone to camp. I've checked all the boxes. Well, Jesus says that's fine, but it wasn't good enough for the disciples, and if it wasn't good enough for them, it's not good enough for you. And still others say, well, I know that my eternal destiny is secure because some years ago, maybe back in college, I went to an RUF meeting or a campus crusade meeting and I said the sinner's prayer. And I walked down that aisle during the playing of just as I am and therefore I know that my eternal destiny is secure. Well, don't get me wrong, those are important things. But the kingdom of God and entrance into it cannot be distilled down into a simple formula. No, Jesus makes it clear. Entrance into the kingdom of God is hard. He said, whoever would be my disciple must first take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, you understand what it means to take up your cross. You understand that that is an invitation to come and die. That's what the cross represents. It is to die to self. It is to die to your own hopes, your own dreams, your own aspirations. It is to subordinate all of that to the will of God. And that's hard. Jesus was particularly blunt. Again, earlier in this gospel, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What was Jesus trying to teach these men? Jesus was trying to teach these men and to teach us that entrance into the kingdom of God is not a matter of affirmation. It is not standing up and saying all the right things or believing all the right doctrines as important as that in. No, it's not a matter of affirmation. It is a matter of 
transformation. It is the result of a remarkable change. Look again at verse 3 in today's lesson. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Greek verb that is translated there, turn, is the word strafo. It means to turn around, but it also means to turn one thing into another. In other words, it is the language of repentance to do a 180, to turn around and go the other way, but it is also the language of conversion, to be transformed from one thing into something completely different. And that's what Jesus said the disciples needed. They needed to be transformed, completely changed. It's such a remarkable metamorphosis, something so extraordinary that in John chapter 3, Jesus likens it to a new birth. Remember the story of Nicodemus, how Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness seeking enlightenment, and Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? And Jesus said, this is impossible with men because it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. That's what the disciples needed. They needed the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in their lives to turn them from one thing into something else. What were they? They were selfish, self-interested men who were concerned with one thing and one thing only, their own greatness. And Jesus said, unfortunately, there was no place for those kinds of people in the kingdom of God. For the citizens of the kingdom of God, he said, are poor in spirit. They mourn for their sins. They are meek. They are merciful. They are pure in heart. They hunger and they thirst, not for greatness, but for righteousness. And the very question that the disciples were asking betrayed the fact that they were nothing like that. The very question they were asking betrayed the fact that they were still far from the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit would need to do a work in their lives. Well, let me ask you a very direct question this morning. Has the Holy Spirit done that work in your life? Not asking you, are you religious? I'm not asking you if you've gone to church your whole life. Has the Holy Spirit changed you? from one thing into another. Can you say with John Newton, I am not the man or the woman that I hope to be. I'm not the man or woman that I long to be, but thanks be to God, I am not the man or the woman that I used to be. How do you know? How do you know that the Holy Spirit has done this extraordinary work of transformation in your life and you have stepped over the threshold into the kingdom of God? Bishop J.C. Ryle said one of the surest signs of conversion is humility. 
It's when, like a little child, you realize you have nothing to offer to God. Nothing. Let me repeat that. You have nothing to offer to God. Nothing that he should accept you. And so you come empty-handed and you throw your entire self on his grace and his mercy like a little child. And when you do, he begins a work in you. Indeed, he's begun a work in you whereby he transforms you from one thing, a selfish, self-interested man or woman into a child of God who seeks nothing but the glory of their father. That's how you get into the kingdom of God. So we ask the question, did the disciples ever get it? Did they ever really begin to understand? Well, it's interesting, not right away. Because you turn two chapters in this same gospel, and guess what? They're still fighting about who's going to be great. In fact, on that particular occasion, two of them, James and John, enlist their mother in a scheme. They say, Mom, we want you to do us a favor. We want you to go to Jesus and ask him that when he comes into his kingdom, we may have places of honor, one at his right hand and one at his left. We can't ask him because he'll tell us no, but he won't tell you no. <laughs> Unless we think the other disciples were further along the path, we're told they became indignant with James and John because these two men beat them to the punch. No, they didn't get it right away. But they did get it eventually. They got it when Jesus died. Because there on the cross, they saw true humility. For the Lord of glory emptied himself and gave his life as a ransom for them. And in that moment, they saw true humility and true greatness. And they were changed. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, you never hear the disciples arguing about who's going to be great again because they understood that true greatness involves becoming the servant of all. It involves becoming like a little child. Well, here we are on Rally Sunday, beginning this new church year. Let our prayer on this great and happy day be that God would do a work in us. We are so grateful for what God is doing here at St. Philip's, but we must never, ever think for one moment that it's the result of our greatness. It is the result of his mercy. So let us throw ourselves on him, recognizing that we have nothing to offer, pleading the blood of Jesus over our lives. For brethren, that is where true greatness is to be found. Let us pray.
Father, we are so unlike little children. Send your Holy Spirit upon us as individuals, as a congregation. Begin to break us, to take away our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh. Help us to see our sin and to heartily repent. Grant us the grace to become like little children that maybe by your grace we might be called great in the kingdom of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.